We come today to the third of four sermons from the letter of Jude, and uh, you may find it helpful to have that open in front of you. I'm going to preach from verse 17 to 23, but I thought it would be helpful to read all the way from the beginning to verse 23 so that we have the context in our minds. So let us hear God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, their loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray for God's help as we hear his word preached. God our Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit and his gracious ministry, we would not only hear but trust and believe and obey the word that you've given us in the scriptures. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the question I want to begin with is this, how should we live in a divided and messed up church? Any honest Christian looks around at the state of the Christian church in the world and is tempted to despair. It's a tragedy of division, of error, of ungodliness and of superficiality. It's a tragedy of division. You look around at churches that bear the name of Christ in the world And you find Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant and Baptist, Protestant and Anglican or Episcopalian with various flavors, Protestant Presbyterian in various denominations, Charismatic, Pentecostal, and the list can goes on. And the the divisions continue to multiply, a tragedy of division. It's a tragedy of error. So many churches and denominations rejecting the authority of the Bible, departing from the one holy Catholic, universal, apostolic faith we affirmed in the creed. It's a tragedy of ungodliness. So much accommodation to the values of culture in the cult of celebrity, in Christian leaders or sexual chaos or the amassing of wealth by preachers or in harshness and unkindness and bitterness and backbiting and abuse and scandal. It's a tragedy of superficiality, as the saying goes so often, Christian churches thousands of miles wide, but only a centimetre deep. So many who bear the name of Christ understand so little. And the question is, how, do we, how should we live as Christian people in, in, a, in a world in which the Christian church is divided and so riven with error, ungodliness and superficiality? Jude, of course, writes his letter many centuries ago. Jude, a half-brother of Jesus, and he writes in the age of the apostles... But what's going on in his churches has the seeds of so much that we see today, so we can really learn from him. And the uh, agenda is set, really, in verse 4, near the beginning of the letter. He says there's, there's certain people, and they've, they've crept into the churches to whom he writes um, unnoticed. They've infiltrated, and they're ungodly, and they, they pervert, they change the grace of God into sensuality. And they deny our Master and Lord Jesus. And really from most of verse 3 to verse 16, Jude has focused on these people. You get this again and again. Verse 4, certain people, ungodly people. Verse 8, these people. Verse 10, these people. Verse 11, they. Verse 12, these. Verse 14, it was about these. Verse 16, these. These people, these people, these people. And he paints a really dark picture. Of them, and we've, we've certainly felt it. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, it's been really dark. And 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 Jude is is like a good pastor. He's saying, "I'm going to take you to these people in in words to warn you never ever to go there in your lives." And so it's deliberate dark 
warning that he he gives to them up to verse 16. So in verse 3, he's addressed them as beloved. I love you, he says, as any good pastor does. And in verse 5, he says, I want to remind you. And now he comes back to the same sort of thing, verse 17, where we begin today. But you must remember, beloved. I'm going to remind you, you need to remember, beloved. And again, in verse 20, he calls them Beloved, I love you. I'm going to tell you what to do. And so there's a, there's a shift. We move at this stage in the letter. And I can tell you that as a preacher, it's a relief. Having been in the darkness of verses 1 to 16, it's a great relief to begin to come into the sunny uplands of the letter this week and certainly next when we come to a magnificent close to the letter. But he's beginning to say to them, this is how you should live in a muddled, messy, divided, spoiled, broken church. This is how to live as Christian people in that context. And I think what he says in verses 17 to 23 divides um, pretty tidily into three parts. In verses 17 to 19, he takes one last look at these people. In verses 20 and 21, which is really the heart, I think, of what I'm hoping to to preach this morning, he says, look to yourselves, this is how to live. And then in verse 22 and 23, he, he looks outwards to the lost, look for the lost. So let's start with verses 17 to 19. Look at them for one last time. And his message here is, don't be surprised, but you... Turning from them to you, verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is not an apostle, but he knows the authority of the apostles as um, the the spirit-endowed, God-given, authoritative preachers of Christ. And he's, he's given lots of Old Testament types for what he's talked about. But now he says you need to remember the apostles how they said to you. And he's going to sum up what the apostles said. You you can find this if you're taking notes and you want to look it up later. You can find it in Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, where Paul says something like this. He says it in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and there are other places as well. The apostles said, this is a summary, in the last time... And when the New Testament says the last days or the last time, it's consistently speaking of the the whole period from the first coming of the Lord Jesus to his return in glory. In the last time. It's not looking forward to some some future thing to us. We're in the last time. Uh, the, the, The Church of Christ has been in the last time ever since Pentecost. In the last time, there will be scoffers. There'll be mockers. There'll be people who laugh at people who want to live under the lordship of Jesus. We sang of them in Psalm 1. We sang of them in Psalm 74. Peter talks about them in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. People are surprised that you won't join with them in the same flood of debauchery, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, and they malign you. People will mock, following their own ungodly passions. So don't be surprised, you've been told about this. And these are people, verse 19, who cause divisions. They're there in his churches, it seems. They're there at the love feasts. He refers to them as being there. So they haven't physically left. They're there. 
but all the more dangerous for being there. And they cause divisions. They gather their admirers around them. And he calls them worldly people, just natural people, devoid of the spirit. They're not really members of the one a holy Catholic apostolic church. They're not genuine believers. So don't be surprised. Now, it's really important for a, a pastor, as Jude is here, to say to us, don't be surprised. I deliberately painted that dreadful picture at the beginning of the Christian church worldwide. And you'll have, you'll have thought to yourselves, why is he being so gloomy? And you, you look realistically at the Christian church and you think, it's awful. Often, often you look around and you think this is awful. Now, if you and I think everything's gone wrong and this is outside of the, the plan of God, then we will begin to get disillusioned. And we'd be like the people, the skeptics in Malachi's day who, who began to say, God is, doesn't really care, God doesn't really judge, there's no point being faithful to God. And if, if you think that, that, that all this messed up church worldwide with all its divisions and its error and its ungodliness and its superficiality, if you think that's taken God by surprise and God's plans have failed, you'll get disillusioned. So Jude says, I want to remind you, it, you've been told it's going to be like this. You were told in the Old Testament again and again and again, this is how the people of God are, the covenant people. The apostles said the same thing. That's how it's going to be. And in the wisdom of God, the sovereign wisdom of God, God has so directed the affairs of his church that the church will be perfected and completed through times of great trouble and suffering. So don't be surprised, says Jude. Look around you. Don't think it's all gone wrong. Don't think that God's plans are being frustrated. God is working through a divided church, riven with error, uh, ungodliness, superficiality. God is working through all that to perfect the true church of Christ. Don't be surprised. But then... In verses 20 and 21, Jude does something which I think in some ways is, is a little bit surprising. He says, look to yourselves. And in verses 20 and 21, it seems to me that Jude is saying, Jude says at the beginning, he says, you're going to need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the, the saints. And you're going to the, through the lesson, you're thinking, how do we contend? And in verses 20 and 21, Jude is going to tell us, and in some ways it's rather surprising, verse 20, but you, beloved, and he's going to give them, and he gives us, a very simple, very ordinary, four-part instruction in which he really says, and we'll see this as we go through it, just do normal, healthy church life. And we'll see this, but you, you, you sort of think, Jude, I'm, I'm hoping you'll give us some super special top tips as to how to deal with these people. Instead of which, Jude says, he gives them four things. He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, 
So there's a building. Praying in the Holy Spirit, there's a praying. Keep yourselves in the love of God, there's a keeping. And waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, so there's a waiting. And he gives these four very simple things, none of which is in the least bit unusual. They're just normal church life. They're just healthy church life things. They're, 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 they're lovely. They're, they've got the trilogy of faith, hope, and love. Um, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Uh, keep yourselves in the love of God and the waiting, which is hope. So you've got faith, hope, and love. It's deeply Trinitarian. You've got the, the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, which in this context, probably primarily God the Father, and waiting for the mercy of Jesus. So you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, faith, hope, and love, and you're thinking, so Jude, what's new? And I think Jude would say, nothing's new. I'm just going to tell you to do healthy church life. And I want to take them in turn, and then I want to ask the question, what happens to a church if we get them out of balance, if one of the four gets neglected or, 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 or just goes on the back burner in some way and see what do we lose if that's the case. So first of all, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. The language of building, the language you get in the New Testament of the, of the church, you get it in 1 Corinthians 3, you're, you're, you, the church, you're the temple, of the Lord, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, your living stones being built into a temple where God dwells. And, and uh, you, you, you're to do that building work as God builds you. And when you look at the building word, building up word, elsewhere in the New Testament, you find a little bit of, of what it means to build yourselves up. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about Christ as the foundation and we build on him. Ephesians 2, he talks about the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, bearing testimony to Christ. Colossians chapter 2, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And later in Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you sing psalms and so on to one another and, and, and with thanksgiving in your hearts to God and so on. So when he says build yourselves up, he's really saying something very mainstream in the New Testament, which is let Christ be the foundation of our life as a church. Build on Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Pay attention to the apostles' teaching as the early church did. Be soaked in the teaching of Christ. Sing psalms to one another so the word of Christ dwells in you richly. All that sort of thing. Um, listen to the word of God. Read the word of God. Hear the word of God preached. Uh, and you will build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That expression, most holy faith, the word holy is the same sort of word as the word saints. Right in, in, chapter, in verse 4, he says, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to the holy ones. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, your most saintly faith. Distinctive, godly um, so you're thinking, well, I didn't come to church to be told that. There's nothing new there. Just let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But it's really important. And Jude says that's going to be one of the big antidotes to all the stuff that goes wrong in churches. And then secondly, he says praying. Praying in the Holy Spirit. 
Sometimes people think that's some kind of a special charismatic sort of prayer, but all prayer, all real prayer is in the Holy Spirit. It's only by the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes of this in Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8. It's by the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Son, that we cry, Abba, Father. All prayer is in the Holy Spirit if it's real, genuine prayer. Pray in the Holy Spirit, have genuine prayer. These people, he said, are devoid of the Spirit in verse 19. So if they pray, and I'm sure they do say prayers, I'm sure they did, It would be very surprising if they didn't say prayers, they were in church. But to pray properly is to pray in the Holy Spirit as those in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, praying in the Holy Spirit. And then third, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't you think it's a really strange thing to say? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay loved. (laughs) And you're thinking, well, how do I do that? How do I stay loved? I mean, surely if I'm loved, I'm loved. So there's nothing I can do about that. What does it mean to stay loved? Now, I think there may be the sense in which Jesus says in John chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, that these false teachers, these ungodly people, have have taken themselves outside of love, of the love of God. But I think the big thing is that the, the, the love of God, the love of God the Father is the fountainhead of all the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's as though Jude is saying to us, rejoice in that love. Delight in that love. Think about that love. Be soaked in that love. Be immersed in that love. Let that love shape your services of worship. Let that love shape your meetings for prayer, your home groups your conversations, your messaging, your life together. So that as a church fellowship, if a visitor or a newcomer comes in, that they, they, they might say, especially if they're not, if there's someone here and you're not, or not as yet a Christian, and you may go away saying, there's lots I didn't understand. There's lots about Christian faith I didn't understand. I didn't understand why they did what they did, why they said what they said, why they sang what they sang. Lots I didn't understand. But do you know something? I can see that these people know that God loves them. And they know that the love with which God loves them overflows in their love to one another and overflows from their love to one another to love for a needy world. I realize, and this happens again and again and again, when someone who's not yet a Christian comes into a vibrant church and they go away thinking, there's so much I don't yet understand. But there's something here. Uh, And love is perhaps the only word I can use that really begins to get to it. And then gradually they grasp that this is the love of the Father through the Son and the Spirit given to undeserving men and women and boys and girls and overflowing. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And it's a wonderful thing that, that to know that God loves you is a, is a safeguard against breaking his law. I mean, you probably all know the experience where a, a, a preacher can tell you till he's blue in the face to keep God's law. You know, you can say God's law says do this. God's law says don't do that. God's law says do this, so do this. God's law says don't do that, so don't do that, you rotten old people. 
And the preacher can say that till he's blue in the face. And it doesn't make much difference to us, does it? You just go away thinking, well, the preacher got rather excited about right and wrong, but I'm not sure it really gets to me. But when you experience, and I experience, the love of God the Father and the Son poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, when we begin genuinely to experience that love and to know that love, then wrongdoing just begins to lose its appeal. And we begin by the Holy Spirit to delight in God's law as the blessed man of Psalm 1. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And then fourth, there's a waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to his return, the mercy that will come to us then that leads to eternal life, the life of the age to come. There's a waiting, there's a praying, come Lord Jesus, wrung from our hearts in times of grief and trial and sadness and temptation and trouble. So there's a building yourselves up, there's a praying in the Holy Spirit, there's a keeping yourselves in the love of God, delighting, soaked, immersed in that love, and there's a waiting. Now, in a way, those are just staple ingredients of healthy church life. Nobody, if you've been a Christian for a while, will be thinking, well, there was something completely new this morning, I'd never heard that. I'd never heard that we should build ourselves up in our faith. I'd never heard that we should pray. I'd never heard that we should think about the love of God. I'd never heard that we should wait for Jesus to return. Nobody's going to say that. You're going to say, of course I've known that all, all the time in my Christian life. What happens, though, if one of those slips into the background? If the building yourselves up slips into the background, then we lose our togetherness we begin to be divisive like these people. And I begin to think not so much of all of the church fellowship as of me and my special crowd or us and our particular church or churches. And divisiveness um, creeps in. If we forget to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, we begin to lose our distinctiveness, our godliness if we begin to lose the praying, the real spirit-led praying, we lose our dependency upon God. Our eldest son was uh, the one who's training to be a volunteer farmer, and he was preaching the other week in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus and Peter, James and John come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's this desperate father with his, his son so um, troubled by an evil spirit. And the disciples can't cast out the evil spirit. And Jesus says to them, this kind can only come out by prayer. We begin to lose our dependence moment by moment, our real prayerful dependence on God when we go to work tomorrow morning, when we engage in schooling at home if we're homeschooling, when we take the children to school if we take them to school, when we do whatever we do this week, moment by moment, that dependence upon God. We begin to lose that and we begin to become a people who are proud and independent. If we lose the waiting, we begin to act as if this world could be our home and we lose hope in affliction 
which comes through waiting for that mercy to be revealed. And if we lose that assurance of the love of God, we lose our confidence in times of a troubled church and we lose the heartbeat of our love for others. And a healthy church life is the best antidote to false teaching and ungodly living. A church building one another up, uh, wonderfully, I think, experienced here. It's so much more attractive than division. A holy church, so much more beautiful than an ungodly church. Prayer in the Holy Spirit, so much more real than spiritless religion, devoid of the Spirit. A waiting church, bearing adversity, so much more attractive. And above all, something infinitely attractive about a church fellowship saturated in the love of God. It's a wonderful thing. We must never take that for granted. Now, just briefly, Jude has said, look at them and don't be surprised. Look to yourselves, stay in the love of God. And lastly, in 22 and 23, look out, look for the lost, reach out in mercy. I'm going to be quite brief on these verses. I just want to notice two things. First of all, there's a, there's a mercy, there's a saving, a snatching from the fire, a showing mercy. There's a looking outwards as God looks outwards. We belong to the Saviour who seeks and saves the lost. We're never to become inward looking and just comfortable with ourselves. If people hadn't lived, looked out for us with the gospel, none of us would have come to faith in Christ. So there's a love that overflows in looking out. But the other thing is just notice that there's a fear and trembling here. So uh, verse uh, halfway through verse 23, to others show mercy with fear. And I think Jude is speaking about people who've perhaps begun to be ensnared in the ungodliness of these people who've come into the church. And perhaps they've begun to show some of that ungodliness in their lives. And he says, show them mercy, pray for them. Believe, if you like, that the penitent thief on the cross can be saved. Don't give up hope while there's life. But do so with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, the garment is an inner garment. It's what we would call underwear. And stained with the flesh is a deliberately unpleasant image. Just as if you have underwear and somebody's got an open wound, the, it'll become stained, it'll become repulsive. And of course there are other reasons why underwear can become repulsive. Anyone who's changed a baby's nappy knows about that. It's a deliberately unpleasant image. And what Jude is saying is when you, when you reach out in mercy to these people, do so with fear. Because just as uh, an undergarment can be physically disgusting, so if you're watching them and you notice that they have a sharp tongue or bitterness in their language or greed or grumbling or sexual immorality or malice, you're to shrink in horror and to think there's something about that that is as disgusting as the kinds of things that, that the physical image talks about. So you reach out, you believe that even the penitent thief can be saved, but you do so frightened, lest you yourself be sucked into that 
morally disgusting life. So there is Jude's word. Look at them, don't be surprised. Don't be disheartened when you look at the state of the church. God is in his sovereign wisdom. It is his purpose that his church, the bride of Christ, should be perfected in her beauty through times of trouble and division and uh, troubled by error and ungodliness and superficiality, all of that, God is working out his purposes. Don't be surprised. Look out for the lost, reach out in mercy, and look to yourselves, stay in the love of God. Just that lovely simplicity of a normal, healthy church life. Let's be quiet for a moment, I'll... Uh, pray before we sing our final hymn. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow in wonder at the love that you have shown and show and have covenanted always to show towards all who will be in Christ. We relish that love, we need that love, we thank you for that love, and we ask that increasingly this church fellowship and every church fellowship to which those here may belong in the future or may belong now might be saturated, kept in that wonderful love. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.